Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum originating from the Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis. My name is Gordon Stewart, senior minister here at Westminster and moderator of the Town Hall Forum. The theme of the forum is Voices of Conscience, Key Issues in Ethical Perspective. Today's speaker is Andrei Codrescu. Born in Romania, Mr. Codrescu left Transylvania in 1965 and came to the United States. He became a U.S. citizen in 1983, professor of English at Louisiana State University in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Mr. Codrescu is a prolific, prolific author of poetry and of fiction, but perhaps is known most for his commentaries on National Public Radio's All Things Considered. His latest book is entitled The Dog with a Chip in His Neck, Essays from NPR and Elsewhere. He has just finished a radio commentary on cyberspace that will air later this spring on most public radio stations. His social commentaries are laced with irony, wit, and humor, but have the teeth of a lion. His perspective as a naturalized citizen may be what lends his writings their fresh, unorthodox insights and their voice. Beneath the humor, there is serious social commentary, unafraid to take on the sacred cows, which led one reviewer to say that Mr. Kodrescu differs from other liberal commentators, essayists, and aphorists in that he combines elegance of style with an emigre sensibility that allows him to imagine and conjecture things that would never occur to a garden variety American. Accordingly, he says that Christian fundamentalists have reserved a special place in hell for me. <laughs> At the center, he says, I believe, of the lake of fire. And so it is with pleasure and with pride that we provide a special place for him to speak freely today. and where the rest of us can enjoy the ride. Please join me in welcoming Andre Kodrescu on the topic, Life with Wit and Humor. Thank you, thank you so much. <clears throat> when the good folks here invited me to speak, <clears throat> they surprised me with the title of my talk. <laughs> Life <coughs> with wit and humor. Is there any other kind? <laughs> Humorless, grim life? In trying to uh, meet the expectation of this topic, I went through most of the grim things I could think of to see if um, I could find one that lent itself neither, to neither humor nor wit. Uh, I couldn't find many. Death, that's pretty funny. Especially when you consider the fact that most people think it won't happen to them. <laughs> uh, but then I did find something I thought uh, 
um, quite grim and familiar, and uh, it is computers. <clears throat> so I thought I would speak on that topic, particularly since uh, three weeks ago I was uh, in Seattle making a documentary on cyberspace, and I interviewed quite a few people from top brass at Microsoft to mothers, M-U-D-D-E-R-S, who are uh, people with a few social skills who spend <laughs> upwards of 16 hours in uh, playing games in uh, mud pits. MUD stands for multi-user dungeons, and they do things in there that um, I will not mention unless you ask me to. <laughs> but I have gone through hell <clears throat> trying to figure out my 10th computer in 15 years, and I'm just as baffled and irritated as that day in 1979 when a machine called K-Pro landed on my desk. Um, in Baltimore and screwed up my life forever. <laughs> Most of us techno-idiots <clears throat> who are swept away by superior sales techniques find ourselves kind of weary, worn out by the losing battle against ever newer technology. Each new machine humiliates us with identical problems. In the end, we become a little ashamed of confessing our frustrations because it seems that we should have learned something. The stark truth, however, is that no one ever learns anything. He only pretends that he knows something so he won't look the fool. Fools, of course, are encouraged by computer PR to think that they know a lot more than they do through the means of so-called user-friendly technologies. There is no such thing. <laughs> user-friendly simply means that our ignorance is now shielded from itself by a screen of faux simplicity that makes it even more difficult to admit our ignorance. Implicitly, all the machines I've had, Macintosh and Windows, asked only one question, how can you be so stupid when it's so easy? <laughs> sure, only I started backwards. From the seeming difficulty of a language called CPM on my K-Pro, which looked, as uh, some of you may remember this machine, it looked like uh, something from a military bunker a machine that could take a direct hit from a 10-pound bomb. It was called a luggable machine, not a portable, which meant that... <laughs> <clears throat> but from that thing to the, to the cute faces on my Mac stretches the vast bridge of 15 years. And for me, these 15 years represent a certain regression from a poet without any worry or money to the present-day processor of words for articles, radio commentaries, and fiction, and still no money. <laughs> when I was a young poet in uh, San Francisco in the early 70s, all I needed to practice my profession was a pencil and a bar napkin and the presence of beautiful girls nearby for inspiration. Back then, the streets are full of people who actually lived on them, or close enough so they could go to them. People used to go to coffee houses, <clears throat> hang out on their stoops and porches, and gather in large groups to throw Molotov cocktails at the National Guard. 
not in San Francisco, but in Detroit, um, collating two cities here for their social street potential. I used to write divinely inspired poetry with my pencil on my napkin. <clears throat> I would then read this napkin to whoever happened to be by, and um, um, if they liked it, I would usually write another poem on the spot. And sometimes I was so poor that I didn't even have a pencil. <clears throat> I used to drink in places where they don't give you napkins. <laughs> on these occasions, my only writing tools consisted of a razor blade in my wrist. <clears throat> With these poetry tools, you could write on a wall until either a um, beautiful girl rescued me or the management called an ambulance. And that's why I had gotten onto this art in the first place, because it was cheap. I didn't need paints and brushes like painters do, or fiddles like the fiddle players, or rich patrons like the sculptors and architects. Alas, golden days. Heaven didn't last long. Enter my first typewriter, a gun blue Smith Corona 220, ready to fire. Sure enough, I started writing prose. Stories, novels, essays. I could only write poetry when I ran out the back door to my cafes and bars. And it wasn't easy either, because the Smith Corona was the first of my machines endowed with the ability to hear me leave the house. <laughs> and often when I came back late or left it unattended for a couple of days, the machine would take its revenge on me by smudging or locking or popping a spring. The Capro 4 marked yet another stage of my enslavement. <clears throat> I have now forgotten just how many months of pain it took to produce a printed text through the bowels of it. <clears throat> this kind of forgetting, by the way, is the computer industry's most precious marketing tool. It is similar to the way women forget the pain of childbirth and then go right ahead and have another child. <clears throat> we forget the pain of our latest computer. We go right on and get another one. Anyway, the Capro greatly increased my productivity and severely limited my freedom. Now, this was a paradox, because in order to create, I needed freedom. But in order to get freedom, I had to be away from this machine. It therefore followed that the increased productivity I obtained from my computer was at the expense of creativity. So I started writing even less poetry. Don't fear, I will not take you painfully through every single computer. I I have, <clears throat> I had, though it would give me great pleasure. <clears throat> each and one, each and every one of these machines that over the years turned me into a slave. Suffice it to say that my art became a lot less portable, and even though I have a Mac notebook now, which is a far cry from my luggable, I found myself bound by habit to the desktop. Once you turn this thing on, it starts to blink like a vampire, demanding its quota of words. Americans have been conquered by computer. By com I say conquered to mean what until recently was being called a revolution, the computer a revolution. And in my opinion, it's no longer a revolution. The computer revolutionists have won, and there is a new order in effect. We live in the ECC, era of the computer chip, and this technology calls all the shots now. In the previous age, the early post-humanist age, the issues were about liberation from oppression, freedom from work, spiritual development, the defense of nature, and art. 
this EPAJ, early post-humanist age, wasn't very long ago. Doubtless, most of us remember it still. Some of us may even believe that we are still in it. Dealing with intelligent electronics does not preclude having a social conscience, it could be argued. Maybe not, let's see. <clears throat> the first use of computers for the purpose of social betterment was in the ideologically neutral area of networking. It would seem that the increased ability to communicate and to link people of like minds would be of great benefit to people who work for post-humanist causes. All the people who want to save the whales, for instance, could get to know each other, and they could link up with the defenders of the wolves and so on. But the actual benefits of networking are not in the areas of social activism. They are in fundraising and marketing. People who might have found solace in the disinterested company of fellow altruists find themselves targeted instead. The most vulnerable targets are precisely people who don't cover their asses all the time. The best targets for sales and <clears throat> partisan political rhetoric are people whose minds are still open. Instead of opening them to the common good, the savvy networkers open them to the fangs of the commercial vampire. The proof of this is the tremendous rise of shopping channels, of course, on television, soon to come to your beloved net, and uh, Republican and Democratic sales pitches that have translated so well in recent elections and recent newspaper stories. I know the counter-argument. There are efforts to keep the big net commercial free, but that's like saying the Visigoths are still five miles from Rome. <laughs> and of course, there are more ways to skin a cat than deafening it with a jingle. From what I've seen, most of the stuff there is it's either sex or ads or both. And it's all lies in any case. But let's take the case of a friend of mine in New York, <clears throat> in New York who started a special talk salon for people with, uh, with high IQs interested in, in certain important questions in the hope that uh, some important problems would get armchair brainstorms and people would circulate them. And guess what? These people, <clears throat> after some high-minded protocol, got right down to business, sex and money. If they had been meeting face-to-face, -face, I doubt that this would have been the case. Face-to-face, -face, one tries to find one's better nature, if only because one has some vestigial respect or fear of the other soul. In the anonymity of the electronic exchange, one finds the crassest thing first. The soul doesn't shine through. Intelligence does. It's true, but intelligence without soul is like a fiddle without strings. Okay, I'm no prude, and I'm not blind to the practical advantages of uh, information in medicine and other industries. It's the creativity angle I'm still talking about. To be creative, a person needs freedom. I've said that before, but let me ask this, is freedom increased or lessened by the use of a computer? And I would say again, lessened, if not entirely eliminated. First, you are bound to the keyboard. Second, you must respond to the time-consuming demands of mostly useless information. Third, you do not have the luxury of being able to reflect for long periods of time because most likely the clock is ticking. 
Fourth, you are connected willy-nilly to a community of users to whom you have nothing in common but the frustrations of the equipment. <clears throat> Time is a limited commodity <clears throat> which has become ever more limited since the Industrial Revolution. With the latest computer technology, human time disappears completely. Machine time takes over. Okay, you might say, but this time, quote, this freedom, quote, that you say we used to have, it was time for what? Freedom to do what? And here we come to the crux of the problem, the question of information. ECC, the era of the computer chip, is also called sometimes the age of information. It's not a bad name. It describes succinctly exactly what it is that we produce and consume now. An observer in, let's say, the 16th century would be astonished to see the quantities of sheer information consumed by an average American in an average town on an average day. Our 16th century observer would at first faint from sheer excitement and delight at the volume of knowledge and then would try to grab as much of it as possible. He or she would, however, be able to grab no more than five minutes worth from our media before short-circuiting and vanishing in a puff of smoke. <clears throat> Why would a 16th century observer short-circuit? Because a 16th century observer, unlike a 20th century consumer, would try to make sense of the information by connecting it. A 16th century human was probably the last being on the planet capable of knowing everything, and not just knowing, but having a connected picture of the universe in his or her head. To be sure, this was a 16th century European, and the everything he or she knew was only what had been written and translated in Europe. Still, that was a lot. Considering that knowing so much involved making a great many connections in order to make sense of the information. After the Renaissance, the illusion of such knowing vanished. Libraries became the repositories of all that humanity knew. It no longer became necessary to know everything. Little by little, people began to specialize in small areas, trusting that they could find whatever they were looking for by looking it up. Instead of a coherent picture of the world that each, each individual might, by reflection, form for oneself, we entered an age of fragmentation. And in this age, no individual had more than a few pieces of the puzzle, and they lay disconnected, waiting for this individual to connect them with information from the library. Information increased, and libraries grew and grew until there was a problem of storage. Happily, computers showed up. Now the problem of storage seems to have been solved, leaving only, only the problem of meaning. This, of course, is not such a great problem. Very intelligent computers, very fast ones, could supply information almost as quickly as one's own memory used to when we had a memory. <clears throat> fast computers are, in effect, a still clumsy global nervous uh, system that will get less and less clumsy. So what's the problem? The problem is that the storage space now far exceeds the amount of information we have to store in it. Everything we know can now be stored in a small corner of the vast electronic storage bin. The storage space now begins to demand information from us at a faster and faster rate. In order to fill its insatiable and theoretically infinite maw, 
we must now produce faster and faster and more and more. Very soon, like that Renaissance person, will blow up and go up in smoke. Not because we have too much to deal with, but because we don't have another thing to give to the machine that sucked us dry. <clears throat> when the Renaissance persons put what they knew in books and put these in libraries, they didn't have to hurry. They emptied themselves of the information that held their world together slowly because there was only so much room. We now have to empty ourselves fast of information that literally goes through us. We have no time to reflect on it. We have no time to construct a picture of the world. We are simply extensions of the intelligent electronics demanding to be fed. <clears throat> when I hear the words virtual world or cyberspace, I think of archaeology. I already think of this world space as an archaeological site, our equivalent of the Roman temple. At this point in time, and maybe for another decade, the temple of virtuality is awake with a swoosh of information it sucks to feed itself. In a decade or so, the info will be exhausted. There will be nothing to suck and the whoosh will die down. Already all the inert life we've busy stashed like squirrels in books, tapes, and CD-ROMs has whooshed down the cyber gullet. The cyber temple walls are so vast that all our records take only a pinprick's worth of room. So what happens when the info's been all stored and all the things you can do to move it up and down and sideways have taken their thimble's worth of space? Well, then what happens is that the temple itself, deprived of its food, will start to eat its own walls until they collapse on top of everyone in it, and everyone is or will shortly be within it, and that will be the end of our particular world and culture. Thus, archaeology. They'll dig, they'll dig up cyberspace like Apuleum, and they'll say they worship their gods in here, and when they ran out of sacrifices, their gods killed them. <clears throat> the meaning of virtuality is the information used in constructing it. Virtuality only has meaning as long as it's under construction. Nobody can actually inhabit it. It has no smell. Or as my friend Larry puts it, you can't pass a joint through the internet. <clears throat> Once virtuality has been built out of all the information we have, it becomes meaningless. And we are empty, emptied by what we have given virtuality. This is the case of any temple. It has meaning only as long as it has belief. When belief is exhausted, it collapses. <clears throat> information in our age is a dangerous belief. We worship information. We believe in storing it, and in so doing, we are drafted to serve the architecture of the store. The original purpose of information was to mobilize the interior of the mind for deeper understanding. In order to be useful in that way, it had to stay within. By giving it up to the computer, we have not only precluded our evolution, but have ensured our obsolescence. Okay, so I'm no, I'm no Marshall McLuhan who thought that the global village is just hunky-dory. <clears throat> but I'm no practicing Luddite either, because I did write this business on a computer before I came here to. <clears throat> um, the latest computer, which was given to me by my mother, who has a great knack for interrupting whatever major work I'm involved in by giving me a gadget like that, so I'm out of commission for weeks. Some mothers are in collusion with intelligent electronics. 
to keep everybody in where they can keep an eye on them. That's Mother is too big a subject, though. <coughs> so I'll, I'll just go back to this question of freedom and time. <coughs> <coughs> Downtime, as it's called. <coughs> so yes, freedom and time and the question of <coughs> what does a coherent picture of the world mean? Freedom is that the reference free space <coughs> at the coffee house. Again, when you scribble on your napkin with the vague perfume of a strange girl in your nostrils, young nostrils. <clears throat> not machine time, not clock time, not setup time, infinity. And that's not a car either. What are these things called? Infinity cars. <clears throat> in this space, in this space of um, this space also known as slack, something that ought to be taught. <clears throat> it's not easy to come by, actually, for all this slacker generation. It's, it's, it's hard work. But in this space of infinity freedom, you dream. And you float, and you dream, and you have no boundaries. You are within a potential and generative state of mind. This is the mulch ground of the uncreated, the space prior to articulation. A place where articulation is, in fact, suspect. You are, in fact, in New Orleans. <clears throat> or you can look out of the um, frame of the streetcar window and let the live oaks in the big houses with their columns and stories flash by without focusing on any of them. Or go to uh, Café Brazil and inhale deeply the uh, uh, music. <clears throat> You hand over some money you know, to the tap dancers on Decatur Street, get immersed in street music. And this is no interactive program because things smell and resonate and brace. <clears throat> Under conditions of freedom and leisure, an individual might construct a picture of the world from the few bits of information, information still charged by the senses. It won't be the Renaissance cat's <clears throat> erudite pre-scientific vision but it won't be the overworked, grudges sense of eternal emergency either. <clears throat> Somewhere along the way, I think, <clears throat> we have begun to uh, speak of the new technologies and by the talk about the new technologies in the same way that um, um, people always bought utopias. I grew up in Romania where a utopia was being marketed to us uh, with a whip. Um, and uh, look what happened. On the way to that utopia, hundreds of thousands of people were uh, oppressed, killed. Uh, I'm not saying that we are in the presence of the same sort of thing, but I hear the utopian tones ringing around the talk of the new technologies. And uh, nothing I have yet heard about the utopian globe being dangled to before us by compucrats. Uh, I don't believe that that place has any livable, livable place in it. There is even a question as to whether it exists. Um, like God and utopia, it depends largely on the amount of faith you bring to it. So cyberspace may indeed turn out to be <clears throat> another utopia like the ones I escaped from. Communism was a virtual world 
that existed only in the heads of the people who ran the state and the police who made sure that people kept the faith. So what if cyberspace turns out to be just a holding tank for a new mass of believers? Believers who think that they are part of a community, who think that they are sincere, but in effect are just extorted of time, energy, and body by an imaginary space owned by alien military forces. <laughs> ours, ours, our military forces. Our alien military forces. So call this oversensitivity to utopian disappointment, but a modicum of philosophical paranoia is in order. Is the new interactivity just a clever TV door opening into another TV, a big telephone with pictures and sounds, or is it a whole new rewiring of what little remains of sense impoverished humans? I'm going to end with just one of the buzzwords that I hear in the industry over and over, which is content. I hear this call for content. I hear grown-ups cry for content in the industry, the way believers cry for a deliverer, a messiah. We have the forum, so heavenly chip. Now send us the content. Well, it won't happen. No matter how much conceptual sweat goes into content betterment, because form never precedes content. Form is always an extension of content. Shakespeare didn't invent drama and then pour some content into it. Everything is content. We're drowning in it. There's nothing but content. The only trouble is that it's just raw matter, not art. So art is what is really being called for. And I will abruptly stop here and be happy to take your questions. Thank you, Mr. Kudrescu. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum originating from the Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis. Today's speaker is radio commentator and author Andre Kudrescu. Mr. Kudrescu has just spoken on the topic life with wit and humor. Today's program is co-sponsored by the General Mills Foundation. While the ushers collect the questions from those of you here in the hall, those of you who are unable to be here and who are listening on the radio may call in a question by dialing 332-3421. Mr. Kudrescu, can I ask you to come back to the podium and we will begin the questions and answers. I'm intrigued by what you have to say about uh, this being virtual reality, being uh, a, a new utopian world and a belief system. Would you comment on um, on the suicide, the mass suicide in San Diego, which seems very much uh, to say some things about in line with what you're saying this morning. Well, there are two, 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 two things that occur to me immediately about that. Is one, I wish I hadn't made it up. I just finished a novel that uh, is about uh, millennial hopes and beliefs and technology. And that came pretty close to uh, describing a scene just like the, the tragic scene in, uh, in San Diego. Uh, the other thought that occurs to me is quite simply, I think these people um, jumped the gun. Couldn't they wait for rapture like everyone else? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think... <laughs> 
what is uh, so, so uh, I mean, the, the tragedy is, is essential and it's, uh, it's uh, one cannot say much about that. Sadly, some people died. There's such a combination and mixture of the flotsam and jetsam of uh, our media-infused world at the same time wedded to, to a very old belief that it makes it fascinating for a writer, especially one who already wrote it. Thank you. Someone asks, do you watch television? Why, yes or no? I don't uh, watch enough television. <laughs> <coughs> I don't have enough time. One of my New Year's resolution a few years ago was to watch more television. It's hard to know what the people are up to if you don't. I am, however, somewhat illiterate in the medium. If technology is the god we are worshipping, what is the devil we fear? Well, um, I think the devil we fear is ourselves and the fact that we still exist uh, in a body that is potentially um, a great tool of uh, discovery. And uh, case in point, these uh, Heaven's Gate people who all hated their bodies. The men were castrated themselves. Uh, they, had, they truly were not at home in their bodies. And I think that there is a general unease in the world uh, having to do with people inhabiting their bodies to, to the fullest. And I think that probably the devil is somewhere in there. As a teacher of English for many years, what have you observed as either positive or negative effects on the ability of your students to communicate by speaking? Uh, the ability of my students to speak in class has diminished. Um, their ability to speak outside of class has probably grown. Um, Quite a few of the undergraduates have a vast knowledge of uh, popular culture that I find myself quite lacking. Um, books appear painful to them, so I make them suffer. <clears throat> Tell us your take on anger. When is it positive, and when is it destructive and inappropriate? Well, that's an interesting question. I think it is important to continue to be angry uh, rather than be sedated. Um, I think anger is a creative power, and uh, many uh, writers I know um, have uh, started with an anger that made them want to set the world straight. Um, I think speaking itself is an act of criticism, because if everything was okay, there would be really no need to say anything. <laughs> the weather is perfect in paradise. Um, uh, 
but as to what is appropriate and not, uh, I don't know. I think there is, a, there is a correlation of some kind between anger and intelligence. Um, I'm not sure it's, uh, it's probably there is a cause, uh, there might even be a right cause for the kind of anger that you know, drives some people to, to, to terrorism, but actually committing those acts I don't think is very smart. So. Pablo Picasso said, computers are useless. They only give you answers. Isn't the value of the information age in the questioning rather than in the answers or the information? I don't know if Picasso knew anything about computers. <laughs> that's, that's what somebody in the audience said, so I assume it must be true. I think so. Somebody picked up on that old trick of attributing your thoughts to famous people, so they, <laughs> so they, they sound better. I have no answer to that. Concerning attention span, have computers and the internet shortened it? Oh, this is a process. It's been going on for a while. This entire country of ours has ADD. Um, <laughs> which may not be a bad thing. I mean, I have heard, uh, who was it now? I have heard someone, I think it may have been Esther Dyson, who is a, a philosopher of uh, the new media and, uh, and the partisan of it, say that attention deficit disorder is, is an evolutionary step forward. We we don't pay so much attention to things because there are so many of them and we need to pay attention to more of them. Well, I'm of the other school that says if you can pay enough attention to a single thing, you're all right. You're moving both up and down. You know, a single tree is probably more alien and more satisfying than uh, that planet all those people went to if you really paid enough attention to it. If they really knew how to look at a tree, they wouldn't have uh, committed suicide. But they probably looked at uh, the TV instead. Artificial intelligence seems to be much touted as the next era of the microchip. When computers are the sole owners of understanding the vast amount of content, do we all fall below the level of slave to the machine? Well, what is going to happen then will be that some highly competent people will be employed by the machines to operate them. <laughs> and um, uh, as a reward, uh, they will now and then get to go to third world countries where there are no computers in order to smell and touch uh, people. So we'll maintain these uh, preserves of the have-nots in order to smell them. The, <laughs> the pursuit of virtual reality, we'll get through this. The pursuit of virtual reality seems, seems to present the danger of becoming a false reality, reality to a society who has yet to consider reality fully. Our freedom will appear to the masses to be unlimited, but to the few who understand our freedom is disappearing. Do you agree or disagree? 
not sure which part, but I think I agree. I think I agree because uh, within the virtual environments that are being designed now, at least, you have the illusion of freedom. You move in them and you think you have choices. You can choose to do this or that, but the fact is that you are moving within the designed environment. You're moving within an architecture, so whoever designed it is, in fact, the controller. And um, the freedom is illusory. How are you personally a slave to your computer? How does this slave think, act, and feel? Just like me. Just like you. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember an NPR piece you did about, um, see if I can read this, a, I think it's Bucharest schoolboy, eight or nine, uh, maybe younger, overhearing a conversation between adults at the announcement of Stalin's death. Mm -hmm. Can you repeat or paraphrase that? Well, that child was me. Uh, the, um, Stalin died in uh, <coughs> 1953, and uh, everyone in my entire hometown started crying and tearing their hair. And the school children, most of all, because we loved him because he was our daddy. He was always surrounded by children, a very kind man. I didn't like his mustache. And uh, I came home, I was very upset, and I went under the, the head in the corner somewhere, and then I heard my stepfather and another man sitting at the table, and one of them said, son of a bitch is finally dead. And my whole world stopped, because I wasn't aware that anyone could have a sentiment like that. You know, it was the beginning of, you know, many things, but one of realizing that, you know, maybe grown-ups didn't think the same thing, so they didn't tell us everything. Is your journey into cyberspace similar to your Rhodes Scholar trip across America, with quirky, likable Americans here and there, or with a computer as your vehicle instead of a convertible, is America darker and scarier? Well, I, it's an interesting question, uh, only because we thought about making a documentary film rather than a radio uh, documentary about cyberspace, and we decided not to because visually it was a very boring proposition. <laughs> it wasn't going out there and meeting interesting people and seeing places, but it was really talking to people sitting in front of a screen. It was not very interesting, no matter how intelligent they were, and they, many of them were, and we did see some uh, new computer games <laughs> in which you're supposed to shoot at things, and they shoot at you, except I didn't, couldn't tell who was who, and I was told that I was part of the old paradigm because my virtual identity wasn't clear to me. I identified, <laughs> I identified with everything outside of myself, so I was shooting at myself, or some, something like that. Will the 20th century, um, has the 20th century been basically a, a search for virtual reality? Well, it's been pretty bad for the first half of it. And uh, um, if there is any search for utopia that's been taking place within it, it's because people really wanted to somehow discover that place where there is no war 
you know, where, where, uh, where things are uh, uh, peaceful, if not happy. But um, I edited an anthology called American Poets Say Goodbye to the 20th Century, in which um, I co-edited it with Laura Rosenthal. We asked um, 120 American poets to write a poem saying goodbye to the 20th century, and it was not a happy picture. None of the poets seem to have liked the soon-to-be-deceased very well. But the best poets in there were the older poets, who are now in their 80s. Uh, um, uh, people like Carl Rakosi in San Francisco, and uh, who, who really lived through the whole century, and it was theirs. And they were wise, and those are terrific poems. And I remember one line from a poem by Robert Curley in which he asks, but couldn't it all have been a little nicer, as my mother would say? Mm. I would. You made reference to interviewing uh, some of the leaders in cyberspace. Uh, would, you, would you say a word about their uh, orientation toward life as it relates to ethics and spirituality? For the most part, the word ethics or spirituality never came up because most of these people were involved in technical problems and the extent of their thinking about the medium had to do with its obvious uh, sociological uh, or psychological effects. The only time I heard the word spirituality was from Professor Bricken, William Bricken at the University of Seattle who is, was one of the um, um, founders of uh, the of virtual reality uh, um, technology and is a philosopher. And he said, there are many people in this industry who confuse um, the web and the internet with spirituality. He said it is not. It is a completely different level. And speaking of levels, some of the people who are very much into the business of cyberspace and living 16 to 20 hours within it uh, called our reality, my reality, meat space, as opposed to cyberspace, which is an interesting word because it's taken really from the Swedenborg, the Swedish philosopher who uh, distinguished various levels of uh, existence, and meat space was the lowest. So uh, there is a, a vocabulary uh, you know, picked up from here and there from some kind of literature, but of course spirituality never comes up because then what? You know, the word soul might come up and the whole thing would short circuit. But there's also this tremendous mind-body dualism, is there not? Which is being enforced by the technology. Yeah. It seemed to me that the effort has been among people to eliminate the body-mind split as much as possible because the body is intelligent and it's more intelligent than the mind in many ways. There is the unarticulated but great knowledge of the body. And, but in the new virtual technologies, really the mind-body um, split is being enforced and given ironclad forms. Is freedom of the mind the decline of social and moral values in the United States? What is your opinion to, to as to how to reverse the decline? Well, freedom of the mind is the only hedge you have against all that stuff. I mean, I don't know about uh, 
how to reverse the decline. I'm not sure which decline we're talking about. There's some things are declining, some are rolling down slowly. I'm not sure. I can't. That's too big. One person uh, who works with Girl Scouts is a Girl Scout leader, um, over 700 members worldwide. She's connected with uh, people in the Girl Scout network by means of the internet and has come to know and to, to meet face to face many people that she otherwise would not have had it not been for the internet. She asked, are, are, are we an exception to what you discuss, or are we just deluded, or what? Oh, no, I think it's a great way to meet Girl Scouts. <laughs> Maybe you could talk with her afterwards. <laughs> Do you, would you like to say more? <laughs> no. <laughs> How do you think cyberspace and the internet will affect our viewing of the world in terms of linear narrative? Well, the linear narrative uh, is pretty much gone anyway. I don't think that since um, uh, the uh, writings, the modernist writings of the 1920s and a little before that, we've had much serious struck with linear narrative. I think our ability to perceive various kinds of realities and various kinds of stories simultaneously has been increasing. Now, clearly, it would seem that interactive text and so on would increase our ability to tell several narratives at the same time and keep several stories in mind at the same time. And it's possible that that will happen, that in the future there will be no more readers but only writers, people who are actively involved in creating a story. You know, it's a story nobody will want to read except the people writing it. <laughs> but that's good. There's nothing wrong with that. Why did you choose to portray the life of the blood countess in a fictional work, and was it difficult for you to describe the horribly graphic details? Well, to start at the end, I suppressed a lot of the graphic details because I read the uh, trial transcripts of uh, this case of Elizabeth Bathory of Hungary who killed uh, 650 girls in the 16th century, and I didn't use a lot of the real graphic. But it became, for me, interesting because it was a, uh, an essay on power and on nationalism in Europe, and it's really disguised as a novel, but it's, uh, it's more essaying. One person asks, can we look for miracles to confound the predictability of storing all the world's information? Definitely. I believe in miracles. Definitely. I think the one predictable thing that is that the unpredictable happens. This uh, speaker series, the Town Hall Forum, is about conscience, it's about voices that we believe need to be heard, and it's about key issues in today's uh, lecture, cyberspace, uh, from an ethical perspective. And we're interested, since we are not computers, but people, with our own unique history and influences, would you share with us just a little bit some of the influences that have 
brought you to put your world together in the way that you do and to uh, critique it from the perspective you've done today? Well, I grew up in a silent world. Uh, Romania in the late 50s, early 60s is a world that was learning to talk because there was always someone listening. The police was listening. And our parents didn't say very much. We didn't know very much. There was always a mysterious gesture that people made toward the ear in the wall. By the mid-60s, the year had moved within. People had an inner fear that wouldn't allow them to speak. And so when one spoke, one never quite told the truth because they were afraid of being overheard. And so that led us to consider the existence of a mysterious and vast truth out there that could be articulated somehow. And that was poetry. And uh, we discovered it in, uh, when I was uh, 16, 17 with my friends in the poetry, forbidden poetry of our predecessors to the Romanian uh, modernist poets who had written between the two world wars. And they were the ones who gave us the keys to, uh, to speaking partially the truth. And that was poetry. Was Kafka one of those? Well, Kafka we, we read, but no. Uh, we read poets like Lucian Blaga, uh, Tristan Zara, Jon Barbu. These are poets who made a big difference to us because they didn't speak like the propaganda texts. They didn't speak like the boring newspapers, and they didn't lie like our parents. Mr. Kudrescu, we thank you for being with us today at the Town Hall Forum. I thank you on behalf of all of us for raising our consciousness uh, above and beyond cyberspace to see what it is and what the effects of it are on us and uh, of reminding us of the importance of relationships and of bodily existence and its goodness. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you.